You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. So it's hard to remember a time before the internet existed, but there was a time, and there were actual people who brought us the World Wide Network that has become a regular part of our daily lives. Barry Schuler is one of those people, and he's had such an interesting career. The company he co-founded in 1990 worked with Apple Education as pioneers in EdTech, and they also designed the user interface product that helped shoot AOL from number three to number one. He eventually became the CEO of AOL and was on the front lines when it merged with Time Warner. Barry and Tom recently chatted about the power of networks, and Barry explained how, from early organized religion to online chat rooms, platforms are one of the oldest network-building ideas in the world. Barry Schuler, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. So, Barry, you were uh, an exec early in the days at uh, AOL. Yes. In fact, I had started, co-founded a company in the earliest days of interactive media back in 1990. We had been in the software business and we had already seen that the stars and the moon were aligning. This huge network was coming along. It wasn't even called the internet yet. Right. Um, and, and computing power was allowing us to do graphics and hyperlinking showed up, if you remember those days. And, and our sense was all of those technologies would converge during the 90s and create a new medium. And we didn't know what it was, but we started a company of engineers and artists and designers and decided we're going to just start doing stuff. And a couple of important things that sort of formed the trajectory of, uh, of, of my career. One was we started doing a lot of work with Apple. We were contractors, and that was the, the heyday of, of Apple education. And they really wanted to put this new technology to work, doing curriculum and interactive media applied to education. So we worked with Apple Ed, doing a lot of pioneering stuff. We went around the country, we saw interesting schools, and developed a lot of technology in that space. Separately, we were being asked by all kinds of companies to help design new products, and one of them was America Online. They were very small, number three online service behind CompuServe and Prodigy. And the vision by then CEO Steve Case was, I don't see this as a geeky software product. I see this as something people use every day that we will ultimately network together the world. And I need it to be easy to use. So he hired us to design it, which we did. And the product ultimately helped AOL become number one. A few years later, he, he asked to acquire us and became part of America Online when it was a small, young public company. And was that the mid-90s? Yeah, so that was right smack in the mid-90s. That's right when the WWW showed up on Time magazine and a lot of us started to think this internet thing might turn into something. That's right. I mean, it, it emerged, a, a, as the story goes, out of the government's desire to be able to network, again, tie together key government facilities in the event of a disaster, be able to transmit documents around. And, you know, then Mark Andreessen came along and, and built the first Mozilla browser, which really created the standards. I mean, one thing, you know, it's, it's great, easy to tie people together in a network. But if you're all speaking different languages, you don't really have a network. And you have to be able to develop a common language out of standards. That was happening on the tech side. 
you know, the piece of the puzzle that helped put it all together was the browser. And, you know, the, as the saying goes, the rest is sort of history. When do you sense there was the shift from thinking of pushing content to users to this idea of user-generated content, this co-creation sort of platform? You bring up a fascinating point and, and something that's rarely talked about in, in the history of how all of this emerged. Being at AOL, we, we really got to see what people did and what they did versus what we wanted them to do. So, you know, if you go back to the, the 90s, people who made content, uh, content creators, editors, you know, if they were paying attention, they looked at it as strictly a one-way medium, a way to broadcast their curated content out to the masses, you know, what was the big upside? Well, we don't have to print paper when we can get it there instantaneously. And that drove a lot of what people were trying to do in the mid-90s. Interestingly enough, people were not all that interested. We would push down Time Magazine. We had every major medium there. But if you looked at the numbers of what people were doing online, well, they were in chat rooms. They were communicating with each other. They were in bulletin boards. They were reading special interest groups. Once we launched the idea of buddy lists and instant messaging, they were communicating with each other. Right. And those numbers dwarfed people reading content online. So the interesting thing is social media began right at the beginning of the internet and user generated content was a huge part right from the very beginning. So if we fast forward to today, all of the biggest companies in the world are maybe say Berkshire are really platform networks. And a recent Wharton study of 1,500 organizations found that networks yield the highest growth and the highest margins and the, and the highest returns. And so the, the world has sort of discovered the magic of platform networks that you and colleagues helped to create 15 and 20 years ago. Yeah. Right? Platforms have uh, sort of taken over the world now. Yeah, although, although if you let me be a little philosophical for a second, I would argue platforms are one of the oldest ideas in the world as manifested by religion. Right. And if you look at even today as... You know, we have the science that helps us understand the universe and the most powerful networks in history have been organized religions that have had profound impact on exploration of the world, tying people together. We just don't like to think of them as, <laughs> as networks per se, but they did create a common platform of beliefs and dogma and education right. systems around them. And space um, to gather, right? The and sort space, of ancient exactly. chat rooms, and, right? And providing the platform for what really makes any network work, collaboration. And what makes a network powerful is it, very simply, it allows people who don't know each other and, you know, never have met and will never meet to collaborate and communicate and do so in a way with credibility and believability. That's super interesting. You know, with Airbnb and, and Uber have been shocked at how quickly and efficiently they've created these trust platforms. But religion did that long before, that the walking through the the doors of the cathedral or the, the mosque or the synagogue created an ancient trust platform, right? That's correct. I mean, because in a, in a perplexing world, where we couldn't describe a lot, you know, from the standpoint of science, 
uh, religion created the narratives that, uh, you know, that allowed people to function within their network and function very efficiently. For 10 years, you've been a, a managing director at, at DFJ. What do you think you've learned about networks as an investor in the last decade? Well, as an investor, any company that you know, can power up a network. You know, we were early investors in Twitter and Tumblr. And, you know, now we see with broadband connections around the world, so much of the world connected, you can see network effect. And you can also, in real time, measure engagement. You know, you can you can build a network very quickly, whether or not people incorporate it as a habit into their lives is another issue. But you, you can see how that grows and you can see if it's going to stick. And, you know, we're always interested in, in businesses, whether they're, you know, enterprise businesses or consumer businesses that can build an, a, a network and, and turn it into a daily habit. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. And today we're talking about the power of networks with Barry Schuler, entrepreneur and partner at the DFJ Growth Fund. Part of Barry's interest in education began after he and his family moved to Napa Valley. Barry shares more with Tom about co-founding Blue Oak School in Napa and how this led him to meet the New Tech Network. We bought some property and developed a vineyard and our plans were to move up to Napa back, you know, in the mid-90s mid actually. And we also ended up having a young family and initially didn't think we were going to be putting kids into schools in Napa and faced that prospect and looked at a very struggling California public school system. So myself, my wife, and two friends also who had been partners in Meteor, the company we sold to AOL, we got together and having been influenced by what we experienced doing the Apple education work, we decided, you know, let's, let's see if we can start an independent progressive school in Napa. Um, long story short, we did. It's called Blue Oak School. It's K through eight, right in the center of Napa. A very beautiful school, and but but difficult. Schools are very very hard. And one of the lessons I think it really set us on fire in wanting to do education as our personal philanthropy. But at the same time, had the revelation that you know people of means starting private schools, even though Blue Oak has an admissions policy with 50%-ish assistance and outreach to the Latino community, very diverse. But, you know, independent private schools are not really scalable and in certain ways exacerbate the problems of public schools. And at the same time, the community was experimenting around with this idea of New Tech High School, a start from scratch, clean sheet of paper approach to education. And they approached me to get involved there. I went and visited the earliest version of that school and walked out and said, yeah, this is it. This is the right idea of what needs to happen. Barry, we've got a, a blog that we just posted this morning from the current principal of New Tech High. They're celebrating their 20th anniversary and they're making yes. some exciting updates there to New Tech High. They call it New Tech High 2.0. So that's exciting. Yep. You were around New Tech High in the in the very early days. Yes, I got engaged in the earliest days and you know, as you know from your background, Bill Gates also decided with his foundation to start looking at education as a place to try and make some things happen and and as you know, his 
one of his earliest ideas was let's go around the country and look for communities that organically have done innovative things and see if we can give them grants to scale and replicate what they're doing. You know a little bit about that, right? I remember that. <laughs> so I want to go back to platform theory. I, I want to read you something really quick. New friend Sangi Chowdhury, who's an author of Platform Revolution, suggests that there's four ways that networks beat the alternative. One, they scale up more efficiently by eliminating gatekeepers. Two, they unlock new sources of value creation and supply. Three, they use database tools to create community feedback loops. And four, they in invert the firm by inviting users in to run the place. So those are the secrets of platform networks. It's amazing that it also seems to be the secret sauce for new tech network. Yes, all of those things apply, but I put a big asterisk onto anything that is contemplated vis-a-vis -vis education. Right. Because there, there just are so many complications um, when it comes to educating our kids and, and our thoughts about what it should be and what it should be at a national level. So those are the nuances that really make innovating education sort of a form of hand-to-hand -hand combat. It, no, no question, but it, there were some early insights at New Tech that make it nationally unique. It was the first, I, I think of it as the first platform network one that made a commitment to digital tools and supporting teacher co-creation across a network. There was nobody else doing that 10 or 15 years ago. So that, you know, that early insight to invite teachers in to construct projects and then share them across a network, I think was a super important innovation. I, I agree. And, and I also think the, the insight of not attempting to, you know, become a management organization that actually runs the school, but try and be an enabling organization that helps communities adopt the network, buy into it, have the freedom to spin their own flavor to, to account for, right. you know, regional and local differences. And I, I think that that really helped have it take off as a, a grassroots effort. You know, the flip side of that is fidelity and attempting to help communities adhere to what they were doing through all the inevitable changes, heads of school, heads of district, you know, all the, as I like to say, the force of gravity with educational change keeps wanting to revert it back to a low bar. <laughs> left to its own devices, it seems to want to devolve back to something from long ago. The regional differences note is, is uh, super interesting. I, uh, two weeks ago, wrote a blog featuring six new tech schools showing how that they, they all had a common learning model, this common commitment to personalized project-based learning, but that they each had a unique mission that uniquely leveraged their local community. So I think that combination of loose and tight in ways that make it high fidelity to a common set of ideas of powerful learning, but loose enough for a community to really co-construct the learning environment, that getting that mixture right, I think is another part of the secret sauce at New Tech. 
Yes, and probably one of the hardest things to do over the years because it is very much by definition walking a fine line and at the same time it requires confidence as an organization and in your mission and what you're trying to do. You know, a, a very simple example of that is early in our development, you know, when you're still trying to build the brand and, and what it stands for, we would have vibrant discussions about well, well, do we require a school to who adopts the network and we support to call themselves a new tech school? Not that new tech is particularly a great name. It's actually a pretty horrible name, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's the one we got. And, 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 you know, the initial impulse was, yeah, if they're going to be part of our network and we're going to be able to get this network to have network effect and be, be powerful, they need to do it. But I think we dialed that back and basically said, well, you know, look, let's make it, make it optional if they want to call themselves Steve Jobs School or Albuquerque Academy School or whatever it is and you know only reference their part of new tech network as sort of an ingredient that's okay and I think even little things like that broadcast your willingness to allow the the, the local groups and 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 you know let's face it education is a very local issue. And in the end, the, the ownership of, you know, children locally, it, it is the community and they need to be they need to want to do it and they need to want to fully um, embrace this kind of, of, of change. And even a little thing like that helps transmit a willingness to allow that local uh, adoption. So Barry, New Tech has become uh, an important cause for you. you. You chair the board and you've provided a great deal of philanthropic support. Why do you feel so strongly about what the network is doing? It may be horrible to say this, but I think I learned over the years as many people who've been successful in business and want to do things philanthropically, it's harder to put your money into good causes than it is to make it initially, in my experience. It's easy to badly give away money, and that may make you feel better, but my view is you have to put your money yeah. and invest it in things that you believe in. And then you have to not only put your money, but your brain power in. It is something I'm passionate about. I've seen it work. I've seen the influence it's had. I've, I've fought the fight through a couple of near-death experiences. This isn't a Barry Schuler thing. You, you, you note you don't see me out in front about it. It is about the team that's doing the work. And I love when when I go to schools around the country and I see the ones that embrace it and what it does. And especially now where, you know, it used to be, let's just try and get one new tech high school into districts. And now what we see is districts want to do all of their schools K through eight. And we have been piloting that now for probably five, six years. And, and the most exciting thing happening in new tech is this move to K through eight, because now it's no longer this boutique little high school inside of a district. It becomes the it. And that's, it's just so exciting. It is. And my favorite elementary school is Catherine Smith, kind yeah. of the flagship elementary in the network. It's the most joy-filled school that I have ever experienced where students really own their own learning. And to see that happen in East San Jose, you know, a really tough community is just it, yeah, kind of so it. rewarding. 
in an elementary school that was expelling kids for dealing drugs. And it is a, an amazing experience to go there. And I love how they have embraced just indoctrinating the kids to the idea of college right from kindergarten. You know, how each of the classrooms are named after a, a college and, you know, how they learn the songs of the various universities. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. I have a closing question. We may want to save this for another day, but I'm studying the impacts of artificial intelligence, trying to update our view of what young people should know and be able to do, given the inevitable life with smart machines that we see ahead. But when you squint and look down the road a few years, how do you think about a graduate profile from students graduating from a new tech schools. What do you think is going to be most important for them? Oh boy, don't get me started. Uh, this is another. <laughs> Let's restrict it to how do you think about your career, right? Where we've certainly seen people who used to work in, in automobile factories in the 60s lose their jobs and how difficult it has been to repurpose them, you know, for them to learn new careers. I think the the, the kids who are going to school and will be graduating over the next five, 10 years are likely to face a world where many occupations, even doctors and lawyers, are, are going to be augmented first, maybe replaced someday by machines. And yet at the same time, whole new careers will be, will be invented that don't exist today. And so I believe that adaptability and flexibility are the most important skills and that more than ever, the notion of creativity, you know, collaboration, all of the skills that that communications, particular, uh, that are taught at new tech schools are more important than ever. And that whole idea of lifelong love of learning, you you, you have to be able to be nimble, flexible. Expect that you might have four or five different careers in your lifetime, and you will succeed by your ability to embrace new information, new ways of doing things, and quickly change gears. And that's a whole new layer of complexity added on to the issue of getting kids education ed educated and then gainfully employed. One of the most rewarding things about the last year for me, studying AI and machine learning and these the enabling technologies like robotics, mm -hmm. has been to rediscover how important integrated project-based learning is. Because I came to many of the same conclusions that you did, that Given the future, the best gift that we can give kids is the ability to walk into uh, big, complicated projects and work with a diverse team in very short time scales to sprint to a public deliverable that's work they can be proud of, that their communities can be proud of. And, you know, the place that's being done best at scale is across the new tech network. I'm here shaking my head at the microphone as you're as as you're talking, and 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 also having been to a session on the two world wars that at New Tech School last night, and watching these kids, their ability to communicate, their presentation skills, what they graduate high school with, where PowerPoints and social media, their ability to articulate their ideas and lead groups 
is something they've been doing for four years are, are such powerful assets as they as they go forward. So no, and the great thing about being in New Tech Schools today is that the technology has really disappeared into the learning, and it's not about the yes. technology; it's about young people learning to use their minds well to do challenging work to create beautiful products. And to see this happen in the most challenging neighborhoods in America is just uh, for you must be tremendously rewarding as a board chair and as a, a major donor to the organization. It is. And, you know, and now we're at that point where, to your point, where, where network effect, we have the data, we have the experience of these communities, they want to scale. And uh, as I used to say in the beginning, you know, if we can do 10 schools, someday we could do 50. And if we can do 50, we can get to the hundreds. And now that we're at the hundreds, you know, we can get to the, the, the thousands and, and hopefully fire up communities to want to engage. Barry Schuler, great to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. Thank you so much for uh, uh, the conversation. It was great fun. We uh, appreciate your support of New Tech Network. We'll hope to see you soon. And next time, let's do it on the vineyard. Sounds good. Take All care. Right. Thanks. Thanks to Barry Schuler for speaking with us today and to Tom for another great interview. During this podcast, you heard Tom mention his interview with Sangeet Chowdhury on platforms. You can catch this in Season 2, Episode 33 of our podcast, the episode titled How the Platform Revolution is Changing Life and Learning. Be sure to check out the rest of the Getting Smart podcast episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Kat signing off. Thank you.